today on CityCast Salt Lake. Happy Halloween. In honor of the holiday, I want to share with you a story from earlier this year, because it's a ghostly story. About five hours south of Salt Lake City, near Monticello, is the Home of Truth. It's a spiritual commune founded in the 1930s by Marie Ogden, a woman who used to transcribe messages from spirits on her typewriter. The story of Marie and Home of Truth is fascinating Utah history, and very few people know it as well as Emma Kemp. Emma is working on a book about Marie, all while living in the Home of Truth ghost town, in Marie's old cabin. Today's Monday, October 31st, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Emma, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here. Hi, Ali. Thank you. Excited to be here. I want to talk about your investigation of Home of Truth and the story of Marie Ogden. But first, I think we have to just lay out a little bit of the landscape of this story. So can you tell me, like, what is the Home of Truth? What is this place? What are sort of the facts? So the Home of Truth is an idea. I think it's a dream. Uh, And it's also a physical location. Uh, The Home of Truth is a religious settlement that was founded by a woman named Marie Ogden in 1934. She was a woman who grew up on the East Coast, was very well connected. Her husband passed away. She inherited a large sum of money and she turned to spiritual affairs and became very interested in communicating with spirits in the afterlife, with where we go uh, after death. Uh, And she founded a school, which was called the School of Truth in Newark, New Jersey, where she lived. She moved west alone in her car and homestead land out in San Juan County, Utah. What was the story after her arrival in Utah? So Marie arrived in Utah in 1933. Okay. And I guess I should back up and say that in the mid to late 1920s, so let's say 1927, 1928, Marie was living in Newark with with her husband and she had a grown-up daughter, Roberta. Um, She had a very stable kind of conventional urban lifestyle. She was a prominent member of an urban upper middle class community in Newark. And there were no indications that she would, (laughs) at that point in her life, that she would give it all up you know, sell her home and move out to the desert, which she had no familiarity with. That wasn't part of her thinking or her plan or her vision for her life at that point. She was very much actually preoccupied with like uh, choosing fabric for the curtains in the new house in Newark that she was decorating and making sure that all of her cutlery matched, you know, and her chinaware was um, <laughs> was in good condition. Right. Because this is like the Gilded Age, right? We've seen a lot of this televised, certainly, the high society. That was her. That was her. She embodied all of that. All of a sudden, her husband became sick and he passed away very quickly. And it's at that moment that her understanding of her reality and her place in the world suddenly shifted. She sort of has this moment of recognition where she's looking around and she's 
what does she do now? So there was a spiritualist movement sort of sweeping the East Coast at that time mm. in 1920s. You know, it wasn't uncommon for people to be attending lectures um, on these matters, on like mysticism and spiritualism at that point. What is uncommon and what I find most fascinating about, about the home of truth is that in the 1920s and 1930s, it was still relatively rare for a woman to carve out space of, of independent homesteading, like, you know, by themselves to kind of go west homestead land and build a community. I'm curious too, because it sounds like the passing of her husband was a really definitive life moment and she was seeking some spiritual guidance. When did the switch sort of flip from Marie Ogden seeking out this spiritual movement to becoming a leader of her own spiritual movement? I don't think there's a clear moment when she's, she sort of says, okay, today's the day I'm going to do this. She was a participant in the spiritualist community. So she was attending talks and lectures and she's learning. And she starts to attempt to engage with the, the spirits and the afterlife through these channelings. She starts getting interested in like palmistry and so like palm reading and vibrational therapy. And you can sort of see her amassing sort of resources from these from different spaces. There was also at that moment in time, there was an interesting kind of messaging happen in like popular magazines about like land in the West and homesteading the West. There was, mm -hmm. that was being sort of marketed to people on the East Coast. And so I think there was maybe like a perfect kind of meeting point of she inherited money, like she was financially capable of doing something like this. She had been attending all these lectures and, and kind of meeting people and amassing a community around her. And she was, she was seeing in, in popular magazines and just in culture at that time, the possibility of, uh, of going out and homestead in this land in the West. And, and obviously there's a whole history and mythology of, of sort of reinventing oneself in the Western yeah. landscape. Manifest destiny. E exactly. And, yeah. Lots of like very dangerous ideas. I'm curious. So Marie arrives in Utah, in San Juan County, Utah sets up this parcel of land, has this sort of band of followers, names it the home of truth. What is the perception and the reception of her in Utah at that time? She hopes at quite a large parcel of land in Dry Valley, about 14 miles outside of the town of Monticello. And she set up, structurally, she set up the community where there was an inner portal, a middle portal, and an outer portal. And so the inner portal was where she lived and held the majority of the single residence cabins uh, that the commune members constructed. And then the middle portal was more communal space. So they had a church in construction. They had a kind of communal cookhouse. It's where they housed the press. She very quickly after homesteading this land, she took over the San Juan Record, the local newspaper. She became the editor-in-chief, which I think is another beautiful detail of her story, is that she be she became the narrator of the news in the town, essentially. Like, that was a very smart move on her, a very enterprising kind of move on her part in terms of being able to control the messaging and reception of the Home of Truth to the broader community, broader local community. And the San Juan record is still in publication. It's still in publication today, yeah. which is incredible. Uh, and they have, they have all the uh, early copies, which is, as a researcher, it's fantastic to get to touch 
paper copies. Yeah, that's cool. Marie's time. She wasn't seen as, you know, kind of as a strange or, or like weird person to begin with. There was a moment of slight controversy after she and her followers had been there for a couple of years, which is when a commune member named Edith Payshak was ill with, with cancer and passed away. One of the reasons that Edith and her husband had joined the Home of Truth was because Marie, part of Marie's theosophy was that she could, she could heal people and prevent death. And that was one of the reasons that Edith and her husband joined. Unfortunately, didn't quite work out that way. And Edith did pass away. And Marie was employing lots of new agey kind of techniques uh, in her healing practices towards Edith. So it's a lot of like laying of the hands and vibrational therapy happening. But Edith had, she had cancer and she passed away. And when she passed away, Marie didn't believe that Edith was in fact deceased. And so in as part of Marie's thinking, she believed that she could reunite the soul with the body. And so began this kind of epic journey with Edith's physical body uh, laid up in bed in one of the cabins and Marie and other commune members were tending to the body on a daily basis. They were continuing to feed the body, quote unquote, and do healing practices and prayer. You know, strangely enough, Marie kind of wrote about that in a, in a serialized column in the San Juan record. Hmm. So she wasn't trying to keep this a secret. No, she did not that. And she did not think it was strange or weird. And she was very much, I think she very much believed that, that this would be a success, that she would kind of bring Edith back to life. She was publicizing it as a, in serialized story form, essentially, in, in, in the San Juan record. And so um, it was a column called Rebirth of a Soul. And unfortunately, what happened was it didn't quite go to plan, as Marie had hoped. And she did not anticipate that the column would get negative feedback, negative attention. And then it essentially national newspapers picked up on it um, through her column and Chicago were covering it. You know, and they, people at the, na the larger national newspapers, they did think it was weird. And this is when it turned into a sort of media spectacle and a kind of controversy. And that it was only at that point when other national newspapers were covering the story as a kind of occult, sensational story, cult leader has body in cabin. Those kinds of headlines was when the town members of Monticello started to get a little antsy. Yeah, as, as one word. <laughs> yes, because, you know, the then it was the perception that there are these, you know, these people out in San Juan County with, with their bodies and no one wanted that kind of attention. And so that was when they sent they sent the DA out to get a death certificate. And, and also Edith's children had learned about it at that point. They were not happy either. And so that was the moment when like public sentiment in Monticello started to shift. And Marie lost, unfortunately, you know, she lost a lot of her followers during, during that period. People started to leave. People felt that they had been maybe misled and that, you know, Marie couldn't bring Edith back to life. And the promises that had been made, you know, were not going to come to fruition in the end. Um, and so that was a very difficult kind of trial for the home of truth. But it didn't, you know, Marie kept on going and, and that was, that happened in sort of 1934, 1935. And so she'd only been there a year when the Edith Paycheck saga occurred and uh, the commune 
you know, survived and the Home of Truth continued on for, for many decades after that. It was just a smaller group. I want to talk a little bit about your experience living at Home of Truth, which has been characterized as a ghost town. And I wonder how you feel about that characterization. But the last person who was living there passed away in the 80s. When you arrived, how, do you, how did you get in? Who gave you the keys? Like, I have some logistical questions. <laughs> I don't think it's a ghost town. I, also, I don't think the Home of Truth is like large enough to even be considered a town. Um, to be honest, I think Ghost Town is a mischaracterization. Um, the Home of Truth, as it stands, is a is a property, you know, at this point. As I said, there are sort of three distinct parcels, the inner portal, the middle portal, and the outer portal. And the inner portal is where I am staying. And it's where Marie lived. It has Marie's primary residence cabin, which is an astounding cabin. Um, it's beautiful. And I through my research, came into contact with the owner um, who was the first owner to kind of steward the property after Marie's passing. The new owner had let the last commune member live out their days there on the cabin. That was part, part of the kind of the deal. The current property owner has, I think, really been so amazing and gracious in, this, in the sense of just wanting to preserve the kind of sanctity of the property you know one of the cabins has been sort of remodeled or, or renovated so that it's habitable that's the one I live in um so that I do have a toilet thankfully yes and, um and you know it's yeah there's a well and there's water you know if there are interesting quirks like there's no power out in dry valley and so the generator for power and you can you run it intermittently and so it's mostly candlelight in the evenings you know um in a way I'm I feel I feel really honored to get to experience the environment in as close a way as I can to how Marie would have experienced it you know it hasn't really been modernized out there um out there in that valley there's no cell service there's no wi-fi the landscape is pretty much unchanged at, as of now yeah, as of now, but I mean, the amount of development and growth that's happening in that region of the state, right, which is sort of like Moab adjacent, Bluff adjacent, like this part of the state is undergoing tremendous growth and tremendous change. And I have to wonder if you'll be maybe the last person to witness this place in this way. Are you already starting to experience the changes of just this sort of time in that space? Like, what do you think the future looks like for this property? I've been coming out to the home of truth, to the, to the inner portal since 2014. And the, a lot of the private land tracks around the home of truth have been up for sale for years, for years and years and years, the whole time I've been coming and no one has ever made any moves on them. And then in the last six months, um, there's been huge movement and proposals, planning and zoning committee proposals to develop all around Marie's, uh, the home of truth. I think it is going to change. I think we're really on the cusp of a huge um, and drastic shift in how that valley feels and operates. And I you know, I feel really honored to have been able to experience the home of truth 
in as close of a way as possible to its kind of original formation, you know, um, as much as that is possible. Do you think the Home of Truth property itself is going to one day become a tourist destination? That's a good question. I will say that one of the funny things about living there is that the cabin I live in looks the same as all of the derelict, you know, from the outside. You can't, you can't tell that the inside has actual walls, right? Um, And so... Uh, sometimes I'll be like doing the dishes and I look out the window and there's just people, you know, like kind of walking around, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I think people, even though there are kind of private property signs on the outside, people are starting to become aware of the home of truth as a kind of curiosity and as a destination. When I first began my research, as I said, 2014, 2015, there was no Wikipedia I, page or maybe it was like very minimal you know there was hardly any kind of information there wasn't like a google pin and there definitely wasn't like an atlas obscura um article and so i think that over the the last few years it started to gain more visibility and recognition as a as a cultural site and you know part of that is really fantastic because i do think that we should be honoring the stories of women and um you know, overlooked narratives that we should be thinking about the history of of women homesteaders, single women homesteaders, um, and and kind of factoring that into the history of of Western homesteading and of religious communities. You know, I think there's a whole really vibrant and amazing and powerful history of 1960s, 1970s lesbian utopian settlements and things like that, like after the women's movement. And it's such a rich and amazing history. And I, I love thinking about Marie's history, like as a really early kind of example of a, of an independent woman kind of going out and staking, staking a claim in a community settlement and kind of running that and leading that in the 1930s. But yeah, I think people are coming to, to see Marie's as a tourist site. And I think there will be more foot traffic as people head down towards the national parks and kind of see the sign for Marie's place and and want to look around. I guess my last question for you is just what do you think we can learn from this story? Because I think it's pretty sensational. It's easy to get, I think, excited about a strange story. I think to a lot of people, it's a little frightening. How do you think we should be thinking about Marie Ogden and the Home of Truth? Thank you for that question, Ali, because it's something I I ponder a lot. There's a tendency to sensationalize Marie's character um, or this presumption, you know, that she was some kind of kooky cult leader or she was some kind of charlatan uh, or worse. And there's an attraction to strange, you know, strange phenomena, strange stories. Uh, True crime is is huge right now also, you know, in our culture. we consume a lot of true crime and there's almost an element of, not of criminality, but of a, of a strange event, um, you know, with a body out in the desert. Um, and I think all of those, you know, factors are important to consider. But I think it's actually far more interesting to unpack Marie Ogden's story within the context of, you know, early 20th century, like Dust Bowl era, homesteading, and religious expansion, thinking of Marie as a woman who really intervened in a male-dominated space at that time. She's a really good model and sort of example of the changing role of women in the early 20th century. For me, 
I look at Marie and I see a woman uh, with a lot of ambition and desire um, and courage. And I see a woman trying to figure out how to deal with grief and loss and how to make a life for herself and a life for herself that wasn't necessarily sanctioned by society at that time. Thank you so much, Emma, for your time. I really appreciate it. And for your research and your thoughtfulness, I absolutely cannot wait to read your book. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to talk with you today. One more thing before we go. Some news, because it's big news. You know the Save Not Pave Utah Lake signs all around town? Well, it seems like Utah Lake will in fact be saved, not paved. A proposal to dredge Utah Lake and build artificial islands for lakefront property has been rejected by the state. The idea had support from developers and other stakeholders, but was hated by environmental groups. The reason this is such big news is that honestly, it's rare in Utah that things turn out this way. Big, fairly unpopular development projects often feel like a foregone conclusion in this valley. You know, kind of like the inland port. For now, environmental activists are heartened by this Utah Lake outcome. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Have a happy Halloween, friends. And uh, parents, be sure to check your kids' candy. I found a $550 million taxpayer-funded gondola in my twigs. 